Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. This week, we continue our discussion on Australia's future trade relationships with our largest regional neighbour, the People's Republic of China. Last week, our program dealt in broad political strokes with Australia's role as a middle power and the macroeconomics of our most valuable export market. This week, we narrow our focus on those big issues. What impact has barley tariffs had on grain growers in Australia? what fears do the agricultural sector harbour for the future, and businesses that operate in other industries in China, including the country's booming e-commerce trade, how important is knowing the right people on the mainland, and what effect will the US-China trade deal have? Joining the discussion today is Professor Kathy Walsh, Professor of the Finance Discipline Group at the University of Technology Sydney's Business School, Brett Hosking, Chairperson of Grain Growers Australia, and Nicholas Henderson, Director of China Practice for management consultancy firm AsiaLink Business. We'll start with the big action so far from the Chinese government, the 80% tariff imposed on Australian barley. Now, industry data shows China made up more than half of Australian barley exports in 2018-19 to the tune of $600 million a year. Now, the People's Republic of China initiated an anti-dumping investigation into Australian barley exports in November of 2018, and the official findings were announced on May 19th, ironically, the same day as the coronavirus inquiry resolution passed the World Health Assembly in Geneva. Now, the biggest chunk of that tariff is a result of that inquiry, 73.6%, because allegedly Australia sold barley into China for cheaper than it costs to grow it. So we'll start our discussion there. Brett, you've obviously kept in close contact with barley growers in Australia over the last few weeks. What's that been like for farmers? Yeah, the last few weeks have been really unsettling for growers. Kind of thrown them into this environment of, oh, we don't actually know what the future holds in terms of, of barley and trade. And um, not just the growers, but the whole of the industry. So what we, we saw a reaction from many in the trade not offering prices so then of course which is understandable they didn't want to come out with a price sort of not understanding the full ramifications we had that week of flux where the Chinese indicated they were going to impose a tariff but hadn't actually done it and everybody was sitting there saying oh is it going to happen is it not going to happen is this a is this a a scaremongering or a bit of a bluff by China or is is this real and obviously then on the 19th we found out it was real um, and that the tariff was formally imposed But in that period, their growers were sitting on tractors, sowing crops, many of them sowing barley, and they were sitting there thinking, do I keep going or do I stop and do I think about changing to something else? And, and, you know, that in itself is a whole bigger question for a grower than just... um, just around what the marketing implications are. You know, you go to the agronomy, like the the science effectively behind why we choose to sow a particular crop in a particular paddock on a particular year. And that a whole heap of things come into that around the health of the soil and the sustainability of, of your farming system and that. And, you know, growers were suddenly in this whole, in a, in a position of reassessing plans that for many growers had, had been set in place 12 months prior. And in regards to the allegations of dumping of barley into Chinese markets, on May 15th, as part of the Morrison government's official response to the Chinese Commerce Ministry, after that ministry had announced plans to initiate such a tariff, 
There were allegations Canberra and the industry had not been given sufficient time or indeed due process to make a case against the tariffs and Beijing allegedly failed to comply with a raft of World Trade Organization obligations and there are further allegations indeed that Chinese officials also used Egyptian barley prices and even its own uncompetitive local barley growers as benchmarks to allege Australian producers were selling into China at a loss. You know, on behalf of growers, we've been engaged with with this, um, with the Chinese government. And, you know, it's really hard to fathom because what we know is that Australian farmers are extremely efficient and we know the cost of of producing a tonne of barley here in Australia. and, And it's, well... It's probably about a third, close to a quarter of what the, the barley was actually sold to China in that period for. So, so in terms of anti-dumping being selling a product for less than what you produce, it costs to produce it, you know, it, it, that kind of doesn't make sense. Um, and there was also this countervailing accusation around um, Australian farmers being subsidised. And again, that one didn't quite add up to. I mean, every report, there was one out recently, um, only a week or so ago, that you know, short of New Zealand, Australian farmers are the least subsidised in the, in the world. Um, you know, so to be accused of, of uh, being subsidised as growers is, as an industry is, um, it's really, I, I don't know, it's disconcerting. And so I think all the way through, we kind of thought, oh, this will come to a point that, you know, we'll, we'll be able to sort this out. And to see that 80% tariff was um, quite astounding at the time. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it's an interesting space forward, I suppose. Now, I can imagine the timing of this couldn't be worse, obviously coming out of a drought, bushfires, and now the coronavirus. So has there at least been some encouraging signs in the domestic market for barley? What we've seen is that is that the pubs have closed, the footy's not on on a weekend, and, and people actually, despite what all of us feel like we're doing, is drinking more at home. It turns out we're not. It turns out we drink much more when we go out at a pub. And we, So we've seen... Domestically here in Australia, a 30% drop in demand for malt barley um, on the back of coronavirus implications. Now we've seen um, this this news coming out of China. We do have a product that we know we can sell. You know, I think shifting it, I won't say it'd be easy. It'll take a, a lot of work by government and trade and industry, but it can be done. The challenge is that we're selling it into much cheaper markets than what the Chinese have previously done we've built this sort of partnership with the Chinese with particularly many of much of their malting industry where we're we're growing varieties and we're producing a grain that they know how it will perform in their malting system they they effectively know when they buy Australian barley they know what the beer will taste like at the upper end. Professor Walsh it's an interesting time to question the trade relationship we currently have with China and in fact the barley tariff have made many people question whether we should set our sights towards divesting as much as we can from China and finding opportunities elsewhere in Asia. The facts here, China's our number one trading nation. So it's the number one destination for our exports, the number one source of our imports. So we have a really, really close tie with China. But our more traditional relationships, so our trading ties are with China, but our um, Financial ties and security ties are, say, with the US and with other nations outside. And so we've got this tension between the two where usually finance follows trade. So once you have a trading relationship with a country and that really starts to blossom, you'll start to um, denominate your trade in the currency uh, between the two of you and you'll start to develop further and deeper financial ties. We're still seeing quite a distinct difference between the two. We're still seeing financial ties with the US. So all of our trade with China is pretty much denominated in US dollars. 
yet our trading relationship is very strong with China. Um, we mean less to China than China means to us, and I think that's an important thing to, to um, point out, except in areas, for example, like perhaps um, iron ore and coal, we can be replaced in a number of markets around the world. So when we're trading with China and we're making these decisions on a commercial basis, um, we're making a decision at a company level and thinking about the risks that are apparent. Of course, we think about sort of the broader economic risks, but we're not thinking about the cumulative issues um, of those economic risks. And that's something I think the government's now time to, um, to consider a bit more closely. We've already done that with direct investment um, into Australia. So with the Foreign Investment Review Board, they're very particular about what money comes in and what ownership of our assets is in Australia. But with trade, they've pretty much left that alone. And I think it's an important distinction that trade is left alone. We do make two distinctions here. China doesn't, but that does lead to complexities when we're actually um, trading with another nation where they conflute the two um, economic and political issues and we're trying to keep them separate. As you say, Professor, trade usually begets stronger finance ties, yet that has yet to happen in China. Now, regarding that natural trust that generally forms between long-term trade partners, Chinese cultural practices make building relationships an even greater priority. Now, the Chinese call this guangqi, often translated as connections, relationships or networks. Now, this refers to having personal trust and a strong relationship with someone and can involve moral obligations and exchanging favours. Now, in business terms, Nicholas, how important is guangxi and personal relationships to securing deals in China? Those networks and those relationships are very, very important to, to business. And it's all it comes down to the creation of trust. Uh, and, and business is conducted in many uh, relational-based cultures. Um, there are many examples, South Korea, Japan, China as examples, where building that relationship is first it's not focusing on the task of getting you know a distribution agreement signed or selling a container of products if you want to be able to conduct business and if you want to be able to have uh, a relationship or to be able to um, have a partnership in market it's very important that that's on, that's built on trust uh, and that trust is dem it's a person to person trust it's based on a demonstration of of who you are as a person who you are as a company um, and it's a, a reciprocated type of arrangement. And it's it's important because you would probably have heard that um, when dealing with, with Chinese, a lot of Chinese businesses, uh, you know, it takes time to build those relationships, but those relationships have a very long-term perspective or they are built for the long-term. Uh, and that's where that relational uh, and trust foundation is so important. So it's a prerequisite. You really need to spend time to build that relationship uh, to build that trust at a CEO to CEO level, at a working level to working level in that partnership or that, you know, whether it be a supplier, whether it be a distributor, whether it be a potential collaboration with a marketing agency, if it's a strategic partnership. So in that case, how important is personal character in negotiating a business deal? And once that, that trust and that relationship's there, it's the foundation to actually getting business done. Um, and you'll find that um, that is one of the one of the elements to to conducting effective business in a market like China, which is what you want in a in a relationship. And we've got to know know the the, um, the importers over there, the the maltsters. We've got to know many in the government, and you know, I guess the supply chain, the ports, and the, the shipping companies that go between. And you build these relationships. And we talk about trade as a relationship, but it is just that as much as anything. It's not just transactional. 
And all of a sudden that's being pulled apart. And all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the teacher in the schoolyard saying, oh, you can't play with that group of kids anymore. Um, and I think when when um, SMEs are approaching the China market, there are many different routes to market. Um, you know, obviously there's the direct investment uh, model. There's, you know, utilising distributor. Um, there's, you know, servicing a market via e-commerce in Australia. Now, in terms of relationships, there is an economic partnership brewing on the horizon that could have dire consequences for Australian industries in China. Now, that is, of course, the US-China trade deal signed in January of last year. Now, under phase one of the current agreement, China will purchase $80 billion worth of agricultural goods from the US over a two-year period, which could obviously have dire consequences for our agricultural sector. Now, as we discussed last week, the deal obliges China to provide enhanced market access for imports of U.S. agricultural goods, including beef, dairy, infant formula, which is obviously a very profitable industry importing into China, uh, processed meats. Now, how concerned are Australian growers about the U.S.-China trade deal? They do export a lot of things that um, will go into feedstock, a lot of things like corn and soybean. We're seeing a fair downturn in in fuel prices so american corn typically goes into ethanol production so we're, we'll see a lot of reduced demand and that that product will become a lot cheaper so possibly some of the shift away from australian barley could be to to kind of you know look at products like like corn out of the us something like that to to build that maybe that requirement to to be purchasing product they've still got a malt barley industry to that is huge in China and that they need product for. And, you know, that's the part that is really difficult to understand um, exactly what's going on. The irony of it all too is when we when we hear some of the commentary that comes out of the American government about China, you think, well, how can comments by Australian government... Now, while the agricultural sector has a great deal to worry about over the coming weeks and months, there is another sector of the Chinese economy that many see as the golden goose for small to medium-sized businesses in China, and that's e-commerce. Now, e-commerce sales are predicted to reach $840 billion by this year in China, and in 2014, China's National Bureau of Statistics estimated that sales grew by 50% from the year before, exceeding half a trillion Australian dollars. So amongst all the tariffs and rumblings of trade wars, what's the current landscape look like for e-commerce? So what we're seeing, uh, I think, with the e-commerce situation, uh, both during and post-COVID uh, periods, is you know, over, over quite a long time, over the, the sort of the last 10 years, uh, e-commerce has increased its prominence and its role within the consumer economy. And during the, the sort of lockdown sort of in January, February this year, when consumers had really no choice as to where and how they could purchase, we saw a massive spike in certain categories of online purchasing. And not just by your traditional purchases, but more from different uh, geographic regions and um, also age demographics within China. That sort of growth trajectory is expected to, to grow and e-commerce as a retail channel and its importance will, will continue. And it's very much made up of, you know, the very large privately owned platform players uh, like JD.com, like Alibaba, and then a number of um, smaller specialised players like Little Red Book and, and others that make up that, that ecosystem. And you've got players, social media players and digital marketing players that make up, make up that whole digital economy related to e-commerce. So it's, it's, a, it's a thriving ecosystem and it's been 
the platform um, which a lot of Australian SMEs have used to uh, to enter and to grow within the China market. And that's particularly so through cross-border e-commerce, which is um, a relatively easier way to enter the market where there's a white list of, of a certain number or categories of products that you don't necessarily need to go through all the, the formal import and regulation and approval procedures to be able to sell products online to a burgeoning consumer consumer base. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of companies, you know, over that five to ten year period, Australian companies get involved in e-commerce, and it's certainly you know an important part of that that um, sales and that export growth mix. The Chinese e-commerce market is dominated by domestic companies, Alibaba Group, Tencent Holdings, Baidu Incorporated. Uh, e-commerce, as Professor Walsh has previously mentioned, comes with a raft of data security and indeed national security concerns. Now, particularly in a country like China that takes a very firm stance upon maintaining state security. Is there a large enough window of opportunity in e-commerce for foreign businesses? I think there's a couple of couple of elements to that. First of all is you have a, a sort of middle-class consumer base of about 400 million. And, uh, you know, a portion of those, and it's expected by 2025, it'll be about 190 million are upper middle class consumers. So those that have, you know, quite a good amount of disposable income that are looking for a range of products that offer different feature sets uh, that meet different needs and are at different price points. So you have a consumer base that's looking for quality products and quality imported products in, in many categories, you know, health and wellness products and food, premium food and so on. So the demand is coming from the consumer. Um, and the platforms, they are geared up to facilitate that trade. So I think, you know, the, the, the comment I made earlier about cross-border e-commerce is, is all about breaking down barriers to allowing companies, for example, like infant formula um, producers or vitamins producers or uh, certain categories of cosmetics producers to be able to sell in the market through cross-border e-commerce, through bonded warehouses and going through that channel to consumer through specialised websites on Alibaba, on JD.com, without having to go through the process of general trade uh, product registrations and approvals, which would, in certain circumstances, require extensive testing, uh, which can take sort of anywhere from six to 12 months for products to get approved. So there are means there to support and facilitate the the flow or the easy listing of Australian and other uh, imported products into China through cross-border e-commerce. And then, of course, you know, China has a myriad of um, of Western brands that are sold extensively on the general trade platforms like um, Tmall.com and, and and many of the JD.com platforms that are there to to meet the needs of the consumer needs, the product needs um, of Chinese consumers, which are which are very varied. China, in April of this year, began trialling a digital version of their currency, the yuan, in the cities of Shenzhen, Chengdu and Jiang'an, a freshly built smart city southwest of Beijing. Now, such a digital currency would be at odds with two goliaths of Chinese e-commerce, Alibaba and Tencent Holdings, who are already operating extensively in e-commerce. So, Professor Walsh, what are your thoughts on the viability of this plan? Can you really take a country of 1.4 billion people online? China's pretty much trading, even though they have physical currency. The last time I was in China, I don't think I saw any cash. In fact, it was very difficult to use cash. 
everybody uses either WeChat or Alipay. And in fact, I was there last November. Interestingly, I was actually in Wuhan in last November. And I was with a student in the taxi and I went to pay for the taxi. I said, oh, I'll pay. And I got my cash out. And she was like, oh, cash, how cute. And as a foreigner, it was actually quite difficult to even use any currency because they don't take foreign credit cards. There's very little credit card penetration in China anyway. So they've just, they jumped over all the point of sales requirements for um, credit cards and move pretty much from cash to digital payments. So I think the stretch to go then to a digital currency instead of an underlying cash is actually only a marginal jump. It'd be a much bigger jump if we tried to do it in Australia, for example, because we're set up much more around sort of the FPOS type arrangements. Do you think that it will have an effect on China's financial standing globally if they're able to move to almost an entirely digital economy? Always been a real question about trust and confidence when it comes to China. Access is only one part of the equation, but the the trust that your data is going to be held effectively and the confidence you're going to actually be able to get your money back out again has always been quite a, a question. When we did some research a few years ago on the prevalence of renminbi outside of, of China, a lot of the people talked to about investing into China were still using Hong Kong as a proxy for China because they weren't comfortable with moving into the Chinese markets. Now, over the last sort of 2014, there's a lot of development in China towards opening up the economy. It really slowed down over the last four or five years. I thought we would have been a lot further along at this point in time. Um, and maybe this is either a trigger for opening up more or closing down a little bit more, but I think the confidence issue is something that's really important for foreign money coming in. China's included in a, in a larger share now in both the MISCI and the FTSE indices, so there's passive money coming into Chinese capital markets, but the active money is still standing off, and I think that's a good indication that it's still in its early stages of development and opening up, and it's not something that international money will, will be treating very carefully walking into China in that, in that regard. The US-China trade deal will undoubtedly open new pathways for US companies into the sprawling Chinese consumer market, particularly in e-commerce. So is there any fear, Nicholas, that on the verge of the Chinese economy potentially going entirely digital, Australian companies may be forced out of the market by US firms with less red tape and restrictions? I think what's relevant from from my perspective and, and sort of from our AsiaLink business, which is focusing on, I guess, the, the the knowledge and the capabilities and 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 insights for business and what they need to know when they're engaging with the China market is, you know, I think I think that when you are engaging with international markets, there are various local conditions, uh, there are various risks and associated with any business as well, and and you need to keep close to what's going on in the market. Uh, you need to understand, you know, changes in policies, regulations, and trends, and so on and so forth. It's it's very very important to do that. And look at this stage from, you know, based on I'm just looking from an evidence based point of view. You know, there's been no indications that there's been any issues with with broad range of of category categories of products that are being exported, um, uh, consumer goods, for example, being exported into China at this stage. Are there alternative markets in Asia for e-commerce or does indeed China's bespoke commerce structures like the city of Zhongan, which has obviously been built effectively from the ground up to facilitate this, does this leave little options elsewhere in Asia for diversifying? 
it's always wise for business to look where they can obtain growth opportunities. And I think looking at Asia, looking at Asia's diverse consumer markets, looking from, from you know, even from a e-commerce point of view, you have emerging uh, e-commerce markets in a number of Asian, Asian countries just looking at more mature markets like like Singapore, Japan, South Korea, but you've got emerging and growing e-commerce economies uh, in Indonesia, in Thailand, Vietnam, for example, where a lot of the global players, whether they be the US or Chinese e-commerce platforms, all have presence and are starting to significantly invest in in scoping out those, you know, the infrastructure, the e-commerce infrastructure to facilitate uh, growth in e-commerce spending. And again, the medium to long-term macro sort of growth uh, trends and expectations for Asia and its consumer economy are, are very strong. Well, there you go. Drink more beer for Australian barley farmers and maybe not to worry if next time you're in China, you forget your wallet. Thank you to our guests, Professor Kathy Walsh, Brett Hoskins and Nicholas Henderson. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app and don't forget to tell your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.